This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, episode 32. Basically, you know, we're all selling something. Right. In our case, right. we're selling our program and we're selling my integrity that you're going to follow. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. I'm Scott Caulfield. With me today, Bob Alejo, the Director of Sports Science at Powerlift. Welcome yes, sir. Welcome to the show, Coach. Good morning, man. I'm so happy to be here and excited. Just finished up a couple of good days at a great conference that I haven't been able to come to in a while and met up with lots of folks, including you. So yeah. I'm excited to be here. Glad to have you on. Yeah, and uh, we're coming off the tail end here of the Coaches Conference in Charlotte. Um, and you've been coming to these things for about as long as we've been putting them on. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of background about where and how you even first got started in the NSCA. That's a great story because the reason I am coaching right now is because of the NSCA, in, which at the time was called the National Strength Coaches Association, not strength and conditioning. I'm walking down the halls at California State University, Chico, after I graduated, I'm working at a hospital-based sports medicine center in town. Or No, this was that was later. I was walking down the hall, and one of my advisors, who was the track coach at the time, said, hey, come on in here, Bob, take a look at this. And he shows me the cover of the National Strength Coaches Journal with somebody doing a Nautilus pullover. I think it, I want to say it was EJ Jr., I swear to God, from Nebraska, doing the pullover. And it was just, you know, it had a little cover thing on there about training and stuff. And he said, I think this would be perfect for you. You know, you don't really want to coach baseball or sports, but you're, you know, you're lifting, you like lifting, and this could be a good thing. And then, I mean, honestly, the rest is history. I, you know, I believe I went to the first, uh, uh, my first NSCA was in, I'm pretty certain it was in LA. I want to say it was early 80s. In fact, I'm pretty positive it was. And then again, you know, that's kind of where I started going in and was just enthralled with the way they had scientists in there talking. And then you had some coaches that, you know, were brand new coaches to me. But their colleges where they were at were not because we'd watch them every Saturday, yeah. you know, in football yeah. and then college basketball. And it, it was pretty exciting for a young guy to go see some of that stuff. So is that when you knew that after kind of seeing that and seeing the, a conference that that was a, li- uh, a, real, a li- realistic career path for you? Did you really know that that strength conditioning coaching was a thing back then? Well, I, I soon found out, but I thought. I mean, I never knew there was such a thing. I mean, I knew there was training athletes. I knew there was that. <clears throat> but I didn't know it was an actual profession where, you know, you're part of a staff and, you know, this whole integrative approach. You know, I just thought you, you know, athletes came to you and worked out. And, uh, you know, yeah, let's lift weights. And that's just the way it was. And somebody attended that session and helped people not hurt themselves. Right. But, you know, and, of course, as a as a biological science uh physical education double major you know I was going to be looking at going to physical therapy school so you know I was involved in exercise physiology and I mean I understand all that and you know playing sports and I had been a competitive powerlifter when I was younger moving towards Olympic style you know so it wasn't that stuff was not foreign to me but the fact that there was a 
an integrative approach where you're part of the staff, you're in the daily plan, it's part of what we do to get good. And I mean, that 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 hadn't really come together in one piece of my mind until I read this magazine about, you know, these programs and where they coach and how long they've been there and all this sort of thing. And, and I thought, you know, it was perfect for me. I, now, where that was going to take me, I had no idea. Right. right. Well, then how, how did you end up getting the first position at UCLA? Yeah, pretty simple actually. I, like I said earlier, I, I misspoke in the timing or at least the the uh, chronology of events there leading to me being a strength coach. I was at a hospital-based sports medicine center at the time, so I was. I don't even think we, I was called the director of strength conditioning. I was whatever I was. I don't remember what it was now, but um, running the the training center and. Um, from there, I uh, went down to visit my uh, my in-laws and at the time, and um, went down to UCLA because it was in Southern California. Um, we were in Southern California, and I just walked into the weight room and said to the guy, "Hi, I'm Bob Alejo, and you know, I want to know if you have any positions open." John Arcy who was the strength coach at the time there. And, you know, keep in mind now, sports fans, this is when there was one head strength coach at every school in the country, and typically that was it. There may have been a helper or two, but that was probably somebody just to clean up the weight room. But the strength coaches at that time did football and very little else. Um, He said, well, you know, I – we, we talked about adding an assistant, but, you know, it's not really sure. But, you know, if you have your information. So I brought a resume and I put it on his desk, walked around, looked at the weight room, walked around the campus. And I left. He called me very shortly after and said, we've been offered a, the opportunity to add an assistant to the staff. It'll be only a nine-month appointment, not full-time, not full benefits. $10,000. I said, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> Hopped in the car, drove on down. And then, you know, after one year, they said, you know, we're going to go ahead and move this to full time. And uh, $11,500 full benefits. And I thought I was making a million. And uh, so I became the first assistant strength coach in UCLA history. And um and the rest is, again, history there. And I spent 10 years of what a great, a great opportunity to be at a tremendous school on path to what ends up being, you know, over 100 and some odd national championships. Right, and right. we end up winning about 25 in those 10 years across all sports. So it yeah. was a really productive time. That's incredible. That's cool to hear the kind of the beginnings of it. And I think it's funny because a lot of us, too, have done – things and strength and conditioning didn't get paid a lot for it or volunteered for it and we're still like gosh that was, that was such a great time. Oh, like, man, yeah, like we, i can't believe they're actually paying me to do this sometime. well i'm telling you it's it's you're exactly right and you know i couldn't wait to get up in the morning and i hated to go home you know because you just had so much fun being around that kind of energy <laughs> and uh you transitioned from that into major league baseball for a long long time so how did you did you know that you wanted to work in professional baseball or did that kind of no it was completely accidental in fact I thought it was a prank I I got home and you know I'd worked with the baseball team played baseball through college and had a you know fairly successful time as an athlete Um, 
I'm at home, and of course, you know, during in 1993, you know, there was no ton of cell phones running around, right. and certainly wasn't much internet, and computers were brand new. And um, I get a phone call, and it said, uh, uh, "Hey, Bob, and I, yeah, this is Bob Alejo. No, this is Barry Weinberg of the Oakland Athletics." And uh, he said, "I'm the athletic trainer, head athletic trainer for the Oakland Athletics." And I said, "All right, who is this?" <laughs> and he said. Barry Weinberg, <laughs> athletic trainer for the Oakland Athletics. I said, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I, you know, like my friends and I are, you know, fairly funsters, so to speak." And uh, I, I, you know, and so he said, "Hey, would you be interested in, in professional baseball?" And I said, "I, I don't really know much about it. You know yeah. what's going on because at the time." Come to find out, only about half the teams had a strength coach in 1993, and some of those coaches, Scott. Only travel. They didn't travel, so they only really worked eighty-one times a year wow. uh, at home. Wow. So you know, they explained it to me what was going on, and I knew there was some in the game, but uh, you know. And then uh, I made some phone calls around to find out what was happening in the industry there and uh, uh, in baseball. And you know, they said the Oakland A's are a solid foundation. One of the you know, a couple of guys were telling me it. Uh, David Dunn, Lee Steinberg, who had done a bunch of work with our athletes at UCLA, um, and said, well, we kind of feel like the Oakland A's are not only the top organization, let's just put winning and losing aside, it's hard organization and loyalty and stability in baseball, but we think they're one of the top five organizations in pro sports. You know, if you look at some of the things that are happening there, I mean, you got people, and still they do, you know, that people have been there 10, 15, 20 years. And, uh, so I thought, well, let's go, you know. So I took off in 93 for the Oakland A's, went back to the Bay Area where I, you know, kind of grew up and went to high school and all that. Pretty interesting. Oh, and what were your resources like for as a strength coach at, with the A's when you first started? Uh, interesting would be a term some would use. Uh, uh, primal, some, some would use that term. I had a weight room. And, you know, at the time, Dave McKay, who was a uh, – was the first base coach was kind of the weightlifting instructor and the A's felt like at the time you know we need we need to step this up into a place where there's somebody that does this as a profession and uh, uh, as injuries were starting to happen and thought well th- you know we need somebody to come in here and do this and so they were they were hell bent on doing that the right way and uh, you know the interview process, it wasn't hard, but it was thorough. You know, I sat down with twelve people at a table on the first day and went back to the room, and they called me and said, you know, we want you to come back tomorrow. I went back in there, and there was twelve people at the table, but eight of them were new, hmm. and so they, you know, from sports psychologist to GM to it, it was pretty cool, you know. Um, so I knew they were interested in doing this the right way, but it was very Spartan, you know, very Spartan when we got in there. And, uh, but they, you know, essentially asked much like what's happening today, you know, what do you think it's going to take to make this go? Not that we can get everything right away. I think it's funny because at the time I remember, I remember the conversation, you know, at UCLA, you guys probably had lots of money, you know, it's not that way in professional baseball. Well, you know, UCLA thinks, you know, professional baseball or whatever has lots of money. And and at the time it wasn't quite like that. But I said, well, no, that's not true. (laughs) But, uh, but, 
you know, here's what I think. And they said, you know, we're going to try to do our best. And, you know, and every year we just got better and better and including, including, you know, getting minor league instructors where we had none, yeah. uh, and, and this kind of thing. So it really grew. And then the profession in baseball grew around it. And of course, you know, the story for myself, Fernando Montez and Steve Rogers formed the professional baseball strength and conditioning coaches society. Yeah. Um, a couple of years after we got in the league, and so that's now 150 something members now. Yeah, you know, great go, organization. Yeah, yeah, it's really good, yeah. and, and of course with tremendous help from the NSCA with the RSCC, right? Yeah. Um, and I, I'm proud to say we had something to do with that. I mean, it was essentially formulated because of the of the the MLB coaches. Yeah. And so, you know, we just kind of got better, and better at it, and more and more, and. And I remember, I remember a couple of conversations regarding, I said, you know, hey, Sandy, we, Sandy Alderson, who was the president and uh, general manager at the time, said, hey, I need to get some 90-pound dumbbells. And he says to me, who can lift 90-pound dumbbells in our team? <laughs> I said, well, we got about half a dozen guys again. He was shocked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I asked him, I need to, you know, four or 500 more pounds of weight. So for what? Well, we, we guys can't, you know, leg press. We had a leg press and there's always a squat, but there were yeah. some, you know, at the time there's... Well, those things. The leg press is valuable. Yeah. Is it the best source? No, but there's some things it's good for. Well, yeah. at the time we just we were outdoing everything we had, and, yeah. he, and I said you should be excited about that. Right. He was a little skeptical, like, eh, okay, yeah. I don't know. It sounds <laughs> doesn't sound much very safe, but, <laughs> but it's really grown. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. So it went from uh, I wouldn't say rags to riches, but it was uh, very you know uh, it was a fragile area to start right. with and then we we built it pretty good yeah. where the a's really i thought uh the, the players that were around us during that time really built a, a foundation and a reputation of being strong and yeah. weight room type yeah, team yeah. you know yeah how was it getting the athletes on board i mean you obviously the a's are well known for that at some point but i mean i'm assuming not everybody was like signing up to run down there and lift with you right <laughs> off the bat <laughs> well no you're right uh, for lots of reasons. One, because it's baseball, right? right? And so that had a huge amount of stigma to it that, you know, with weightlifting is not a good idea. Right. But they'd already had some weightlifting going on and probably were lifting more okay. than any any team in the league already. Okay. So the fact that they had somebody coming from, and, you know, I came from UCLA where I'd done all these things and I'd worked with all the sports, including football. Yeah. And so, you know, that helped a lot. But the other thing that helped was Tony La Russa was the manager, yeah. the way they run the front office. I mean, I like I say, I, I, I had the best job in baseball twice, <laughs> and uh, I, I couldn't have been more supported anywhere in my career more than I was there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we had some guys that were older, too. So, you know, at, at the time, the term being a pro, if you were called a pro, it was the ultimate compliment. Yeah, uh, I don't know what they call it now, but at the time. So we had, yeah. you know – there was Dennis Eckersley, there was, you know, uh, McGuire, there was Terry Steinbach, there was David Henderson. Uh, I mean, there was tons of, you know, Bobby Welch, Ron Darling, tons of pros. Yeah. They were just, you know, we know you're here to help, you know. And so the conversations we had certainly are much different than you, the ones you have in college, right? Yeah. I mean, you're talking to adults. Right. And uh, it had been around a while, right? And so uh, it was real... It was a real easy conversation, and of course, the kind of conversation you have where you say, "Well, I think I can help you," and I think those guys, when you say that, it sounds different than you need to lift weights because we have a weight program, right? Right. 
So, you know, somebody's now like, I don't know if that's going to help my program. I'd explain to them how, you know, or help my game. I don't know, explain to them how I thought it would help. And they'd have to figure that out in their own minds. And eventually it just became what we did, you know, and you're right. A hundred percent. It didn't happen on the first day and really didn't happen the first couple of years. But as time went on, those guys were lifted, kept lifting and they got better at that because there was somebody really driving it and other guys would say you know they talk amongst each other and they'd say you know i want to do some lower body lifting but i'm not sure about the upper body well sure come on in let's go you know and so and then by the time you know getting down to my you know sixth seventh eighth ninth year there i mean we just you know we dominated every weight room we went in i like to say i thought we had as many guys lifting hard and heavy as anybody in the league yeah and you were lifting you guys were doing olympic lifts and you guys were doing <clears throat> real fundamental basic movements too i think you've talked well there about. were some and we didn't have a lot of room to do as much as we'd like to but you know like so i'll give you an example my thoughts and, and this is you know one thing that you got to realize as a young coach going in that you have to figure out how's this going to fit yeah. and part of fitting doesn't necessarily have to be what kind of athletes do you have or you know power clean it's like safety yeah. space yeah. all this stuff and, the, and with the space that we had originally you know i wanted to squat and we did but i thought what's the safest way to do that but in the room size that we had in the placement of where this bar was going to be you know you got to you know when you diagram your room out and everything you got seven feet you know, and this kind of stuff with the Olympic bar. I thought the safest thing was to have a Smith machine in there. So we put one in only because the downside of having somebody one day not loading one side of that collar up on a squat, if that bar got loose, I mean, it could easily hit five guys, yeah. you know, not like today's squat rack where, right. you know, this, you got some space. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, under those kind of constraints, we were able to do and continue to do, what we wanted to i mean you know as as this thing kind of morphed and progressed you know it's kind of like you have to attract uh you have to track those those bees with the honey a little bit right so you know we may not start out with the heavy deadlifts more like take these dumbbells let's work on a you know a front squat or whatever we did and that eventually morphed into later on what ended up being you know heavy trap bar deadlifts because we didn't have some room in some places to do that And also, as time went on, Scott, you know, athletes would come in from college programs a little bit better, um, versed in Olympic style lifting and some of the things they'd done. And most of that they were able to do in spring training because we had huge buildings. But, you know, on the road and all that, you know, that's the other piece of it. So, there, you know, at the time, too, as this thing progressed sometimes you couldn't use their weight room there was no visiting weight room yeah so if you're just going to do you know let's say the the olympic lifts a perfect example if you're just going to do olympic lifts you know once a week or once every two weeks because you're on the road and there's no facility there then that doesn't make any sense so we said you know what i know you like to do that let's do this instead yeah because i you know you're going to get sore if we just do you know that kind of thing so yeah but i i think i think if i was to pick my hand on any kind of philosophy or method that we did that nobody else did we lifted the heavy as we could all the time okay all the time yeah. that's good to hear too yeah and i think you made a great point about you have to do what suits your facility what suits your you know athletes and yeah. what suits what you can actually get done to create a stimulus that's going to help them get better <laughs> you're right so i'll give you another example dennis eckersley was a guy that you know <laughs> hall of famer great guy 
uh, tremendous shape. He would go out and run every day, you know, up up to 60 minutes. I mean, just go. Hit the streets of Oakland, hit the streets of Toronto, hit the street, and he would just go. And I was trying to get our pitchers into this program, which we now know. Let's shorten that down. I'd rather you guys do shorter, longer strides and sprints and make an interval and get your yardage and mileage that way than going out for a distance run. Here's what that means, blah, blah, blah. And Eckersley said, hey, you know, and this is the kind of pro he was. He said, I understand what you're telling me and all that, and I, and I, and I don't disagree or disbelieve that it works. But for me, when I go on run, it clears my mind and, you know, my personal space, and it makes me better. You know, that's sometimes better than any physiology. Yeah. What am I going to yeah. tell Dennis Eckersley? Right. You know, so, right, right. And, and eventually, the way this worked out, I came downstairs one day, and, uh, I mean, if I marked off most foul line to foul line in the outfield. It's almost, you know, one, between 150 and 200, you know. And so I saw him out there doing that one day, kind of sprinting that distance. I'd yeah. never seen him do that before. Yeah. And so after a while, he said, hey, I was doing some things. How should I do that? You know, I kind of like that. Right. Well, here, let me give you some ideas here, you know. Yeah. So he kind of mixed that in. So, you know. That kind of stuff. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and Jay DeMeo from Richmond that yeah. I had on before here too was talking about that. And like, he's like, you know, I'm not going to get into argument with this guy over it if he's like, well, you know, I, I just, I feel great if I do this whatever exercise yeah. X. And then, but then at some point he comes to me because I let him do that and then says, well, hey, what? what do you think I should do next now? Correct. You know, and yeah. you've got the buy-in. You know? I think, I think that's when you realize that you got uh, the kind of skills it takes to be a strength and conditioning coach. It's yeah. not, you know, like I say, the sets and reps are the easiest things that you'll ever do. Yeah. It's the stuff outside of it to make those sets and reps kind of come to life. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that then too. What, what are some of these, uh, outside the skills of having a degree and certification that people need to have to get into this field? Uh, it's a little different now than it was then because there was, you know, it was it's at the neophytic stages then. Everything was being developed and brought on. So, you know, like I, I go from being the first assistant in UCLA history in 1984 to having a staff of 15 at NC State in 2011 right yeah. so it's you know it, it's a little bit different on how you get there but the qualities of the coach themselves i think are as relevant now as they were then i mean i think you have to be able to work with people and you have to be able to work with different different sociological back or uh, socioeconomic backgrounds social you know all this thing has to play into you know we we do a lot of of uh selling you know it's interesting i just i think i just tweeted an article a while back on selling from the harvard business review and essentially what the article was talking about is you know we hear about you know salesmen and we kind of get this negative connotation of what that looks like and what that means but basically you know we're all selling something you right know? in our case right. we're selling our program and we're selling my integrity that you're going to follow and all this stuff. So that's, you know, that's important. And then I think that ends up branching out into many things, you know, like, you know, saying, say, for instance, you know, talking about trust me and, and I have integrity, I want you to follow me. And yet you don't know how to dress in the weight room. Your shirt's hanging out. Yeah. Nobody's wearing the same stuff. And that's important, yeah. you know, and so it's 
much like the article I, that that I think we were talking about earlier. You know, run your run your weight room like a business because yeah. it is, yeah. and, and so I think you have that have to have that kind of acumen too. Yeah. I mean, you have to have a well structured, organized program, and that doesn't mean necessarily the weight training. It means yeah. how's your staff act, what kind of personality do you want to present, what kind of you know image are you going to portray, and yeah. you know branding seems to be a big term these days and and uh, and i say you know we all have a brand you know yeah. maybe it was called personality or aura before but you know yeah. what is your brand you know like yeah. what do you help people to know you uh know of you or yeah. know about you and so that that's i think that skill is super important to get kids involved because they yeah. watch you know they know what's right. going on so you know how you act and how you carry yourself i think is a huge part of um what's called buy-in right yeah yeah and you said something too about which i've hear i hear coaches say a lot you know like oh, i could never you know go to the private sector or whatever because i can't be a salesman or whatever and it's like oh yeah well you don't have to sell what you're doing to athletic directors oh, and no team sport coaches and you're you're gonna be a whether you recognize it or not, you're going to be a salesman. Like you said, now we're sharing articles about how to, about why the salesmanship is important. And, you know, probably the, whether you know that you're doing it or not, the, those skills, you, the people at the highest level might be the best salesmen, right? Or no in question. the big times, bigger sports. Yeah. You know, what you're doing is you're creating this, this strategy of, you know, implementation, right? And all that is, is formulating a sales pitch, isn't it? Yeah. That's what it ends up being. So, right. I mean, uh, and you don't have to think about it in that terms, but sometimes if you find yourself struggling and trying to put things together, I think that's probably the term you need to go to. Like, okay, so what if I wanted somebody to buy this? what would I do, you know, and, and, uh, you'll find your way. I mean, listen, we all know demographics in the weight room are different. You know, the demographics and personalities of a swimmer is much different than basketball or baseball or, you know, the field hockey is different than the gymnastics team. It just is. So you certainly don't treat them all the same way, nor do you talk to them all the same way. And so that's important. Yeah. And you said something that made me remember a story that we talked about a long time ago about, uh, how you dress and I've been to major league baseball winter meetings and these guys, all of the coaches are very professionally dressed. It's uh it's not a suit and tie thing, but everybody is dressed professionally. And I remember you telling me that originally, <laughs> you know, guys who were in sweats and you, and you guys who founded that uh, society were like, listen, we're not going to, we're going to be, we're going to look, as professional as of an organization as we want to be taken serious to be. Yeah. Well, we had some great story. We, so sometimes we'd have guys go, go back to the room and change and yeah. we would stop them. And, uh, you know, when we first got some exposure for, for speaking, you know, I mean, uh, which we were all used to kind of doing, you know, to, to a certain degree. And I'd already had some, you know, most, I wouldn't say most of us, but myself and Fernando Montez, you know, it had some, speaking engagements the NSCA for one where I you know I usually go suit and tie with that right and so uh, we go to this one thing and finally we got a speaker at this thing and I can't remember exactly what it was but we all go and we're excited to not listen to him speak as much as we are to see what everybody's reaction is to this right well he takes the stage in a button-down polo shirt and we just 
were aghast like oh god because everybody in the and there was athletic trainers involved so they all had at least button down shirts and slacks on yeah. right and that very next meeting we hauled up and said we're never gonna nobody will ever do that again yeah. if you don't have a shirt and tie ask us we'll buy you one you know or whatever don't don't do that and you know we kept saying the same thing about you know you're you're not going to show up at a an, an accountant's convention or a physician's convention people walking around in shorts and flip-flops and that's ridiculous and right. yet here we are always talking about and still are by the way <laughs> right the credibility that we have or the the perception of other in other people's eyes of what we do you know you, you that has a lot to do with what you dress like it certainly does even when you walk into a bar or a restaurant or the, the mall and you look at people you yeah. get an idea of at least what you think they are yeah. Yeah. by how they're dressed so we you know we made sure and it wasn't an easy transition you know at the time but you know uh you know go to goodwill go whatever you got to do you got to let's go slacks button down shirt and and i i will say much like you're saying, I was just at the last winter meeting. I was absolutely impressed with. I would say most everybody had a suit on or slacks and a jacket. Yeah. Not everybody had a tie on, yeah. but in that, you know, I felt really of all the things. Isn't this odd? When I saw there's 180 people there, and of course that's the first time I've been back to that in a long time. People it was flattered. People say, "Well, it's much different than when you guys started it years and years ago." What do you think? You know, and wow, isn't this great? But the one thing that struck me more than anything was the way everybody dressed. Yeah, uh, that's funny. That you yeah, should mention that. Professional. Yeah, a couple of years ago when I spoke, Lauren Landau was speaking too, and. Uh, he was like, oh, man, I wanted to do some practical stuff. He's like, can you go back and change shoes and put some shorts on? I was like, oh, no. Like, you don't want me to. I, I did for him because he's my friend. Yeah. I, but I was like, oh, man, this isn't going to be a good demonstration of movement skills. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, um, but I think that's important, too. You know, the first impression, especially if it's a first impression. Um, but like you said, just for people to be. Uh, their perception of of who we are as strength coaches because sometimes we have gotten the bad knock over time because people maybe didn't take it seriously enough take themselves seriously enough there's absolutely no question about that none um, and you talked about being dressed you know for NSCA events you've you've ran for the board of directors you've been involved in the NSCA in a lot of different ways talk about some of the some of that involvement and in running for the board directors and why why that's been important as a strength coach well i think overall i mean i just feel this obligation as time has gone on and even more now than i have that uh as corny as it sounds kind of giving back to the profession i mean look i you know been coaching for 35 years had had a fair amount of success doing what I do and been associated with it for a while and had a good living and done some fun things, met some terrific people. And, and, uh, I just want people to be able to draw that same experience for themselves. Right. So that's number one, right? Number two is that, <clears throat> I mean, I frankly, and I say this all the time, I don't think enough of us fight for what we're talking about. I think we all complain a lot about it. But we don't see much happening. We don't see much, um, um, you know, activism in that way, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so, you know, 
I'm not one to just talk and not do anything. So if I want to do that, what do I do? Well, I want to get on the board of directors. I want to be the president. I want, you know, so I've tried those things and I haven't as of not so much recently, but I know, you know, I've talked about a couple projects and I'm always, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked outside of doing things or helping out without me even being on a board or whatever. So, I mean, I, I'm always able to do that, but I, I think, um, I don't look at it in terms of helping myself as much as I do to help everybody else. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, long story short, when I was asked to run for president back in 2002 or three, I think it was, um, I wasn't certified then. And, you know, I'd already been coaching for 20 years. And of course, my, my question is, why, why do I want to be certified now? I mean, well, I, don't, I don't know what else that's going to get me, right. right? I've already been pro baseball. I've been at UCLA for 10 years. I, you know, I mean, I don't know what else. I've been speaking. I've been writing. Well, of course, the answer to that question was, uh, you know, it'd be tough for you to run for president and not have the flagship certification. <laughs> So I moan about it and kind of went to the board a couple of times about some, you know, some thoughts, people I respected. And in the end, I thought, yeah, well, I'll tell you who it was. It was Andy Fry who told me, you know, if you really want to help everybody, this is something you have to do. And so, you know, I really respect Andy and he's a very close friend. And so, yeah, in, in, a, in an immediate in a second, I changed my mind. I'll go take it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, again, I, I, you know, and well, I guess subsequently that ended up being a good idea because later on, you're not going to be able to coach right? at the college level <laughs> unless you have your certification. And, right. and of course I was as critical of the certification at the time as anybody was yeah. because, you know, in the beginning it was just a test made up and corrected by ourselves, you know, and which really wasn't very reliable right. or valid yeah. and of course that's been um, fantastically changed over time and it's uh you know and uh and again for anybody listening to this let me just tell you that anybody thinking that anybody can walk in to take that test is a bunch of bs there's still yeah. a 40 percent or so failure rate. Right. am i right yep it's so like 40, no 45 42 something like that. there's some folks going in there thinking yeah. they're going to do that so don't don't believe the hype and, yeah. and uh, i was just talking to jim malone last night who had a great career in major league baseball and is now the director of strength conditioning at campbell university about that very thing, you know, about taking the test in, in uh, 2002. And I said, I was scared to death. My, my, yeah. my motivation to pass it was the fear of failing it. <laughs> you know, after all these things I've done, I felt like, oh, my God, this, you know, can you imagine me failing this? And that's, yeah. you know, somebody's going to hear about that. Yeah. And uh, he said, absolutely. Right. <laughs> Same thing. He said, man, I took the practical. I did this. I did that. I said, yeah. oh, my God. You know what I mean? So, and I ended up having a, a tremendous score, I think. But at the same time, I, I still left that thinking, well, I thought two things, uh, getting off track a little bit. But the two things I thought was, that was damn hard. Yeah. And the second thing I thought is, now I can be a real critic of this thing because right. I've actually taken the test. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? And I think you've seen me post a few times, like, you know, all these people talking about, oh, I don't need those credentials. Those things right. don't mean anything. And then my first question is, hey, are you certified? Yeah. And the answer is always no. Right. Okay. Well, then shut no, up. You can't critique you it. You can't yeah. critique it. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point about it. One, the... Oh, you just study for it and take it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See how that works out for you. Yeah. Uh, I'm telling you. (laughs) But anyway, you get back to your original question, you know, has it helped me as a strength coach? I I think it's more helpful for the profession, my involvement with the NSCA. And of course, most anybody who publishes or writes thinks they're offering something that's 
the best option, whether it's a method, a philosophy, you know. And so, you know, I'm not any different than anybody else. I think that what I have is the the best option, whatever, you know, I'm talking about that particular day. And so, uh, but at the same time, you know, I like educating. I like it. Like we were just talking, I like folks coming up to me and saying, hey, coach, thanks a lot for that article or great, great talk. I've changed my program or I've done this and that. And those things are really rewarding. But but, uh, I I still think, and and I'm not going to stop about some of the things to talk about, still boasting for the profession, trying to get us more stability and all these things are important. I think it's all possible yeah and uh, i'm not going to stop till i can see it happen yeah when the other thing about certification too is it's like it's one of the minimum requirements like the the certification itself is not the reason you get a job you know the experience in their relationship building all that so that's another thing that is one of my pet peeves that people just assume that just because they have that well no it, and if that's why someone is getting hired then you know there's probably a lot of other things wrong with that position too <laughs> right so you bring up a great point and, I'll, and I'll, again i'll say this now because i have the forum don chu pulled me in after i was you know ranting and raving about i don't need this to be a great leader and you know to be the president and all that and you know what does that mean and and he said listen it's clearly stated meets the minimum requirement for you know it doesn't say that everybody that takes this test knows every single thing about strength and conditioning nor does it say they're going to be the greatest strength coach in history after you take this by virtue of md cpa pt atc all of them have certifications but all of us know plenty of people who have those initials after their name that we wouldn't work with or employ yeah so the fact that they have those certifications don't mean they're great either, but it does lend some credibility that you've made the attempt to have a, an extra amount of knowledge and an extra amount of passion in that area, yeah. and you meet the minimum requirement. Yeah. Okay, so I, I said, you know what, you know, again, I, I, one thing I'm smart about doing is being smart enough to ask somebody else something that I know I'm not really, yeah. you know, and, and I was glad I asked on you that, and that that was a. Uh, super not only was it superman advice but it it educated me and and that's the thing that's lost i think on most people too yeah yeah and you talked a little bit about some of the stuff you've written about recently or the profession in general and maybe talk about some of the thoughts along those lines and how we're evaluating strength coaches and well i mean we're not right (laughs) so that's what you're asking me how how we're not evaluating by by we we mean the administrations at the places we work well look this is i mean so let me step up a little bit and think about this some you know i mean i've been really lucky to coach straight through for 35 straight years and the way i like to say it is i've been the gingerbread man for 35 years you know they couldn't catch me and now they did so after not being employed in university and certainly having a full understanding of who you are and what you're doing there and others around you now i'm even better at looking because now i can talk to people out and find out all these things and again I don't think it's an epidemic, but it's certainly prevalent in most schools, how we're viewed and perceived, acted upon, salaried, structured, uh, and it's not good. It's not good. I mean, we hear about some tremendous salaries. There's certainly a better chance to make more money than ever. I mean, nobody is getting a, a full-time, big, big power five job for $11,500 like I did. Uh, but... <clears throat> Um, 
we, we got to be in a better spot. And so, you know, I mean, there's a couple of things there. We're talking about having a better seat at the table. The only way we can get that seat, uh, Scott, is to be an assistant general manager or an associate athletic director so that we can actually supervise our position yeah. right now. I, I can only think, I honestly can only think of one right now that was a head strength conditioning coach at a major college and now covers that area for their school. And that's Mark Hill at Kentucky. I, I don't know anybody else who's in that position, uh, uh, that can evaluate us. And it's a shame too, because not only in, and I've been, you know, you can see this in some of the articles I've written you know, for simply faster.com, but it, it's, it's we're being supervised by somebody who doesn't know all that we do. Yeah. They're, they're doing reviews on our performance. Those documents go on file at the university. Right. I mean, that's, that's an embarrassing administrative process to not to mention that not only does that person cover our area, but they're looking at athletic training, sports psychology, sports nutrition, maybe three other sports they cover yeah. and they're also doing some other you know student event thing so by the time what we have as an important issue for them to bring to a higher level they, they have all these other things and it just gets keep getting pushed back yeah. and so you know it's shameful that way yeah. um and so we need to have a better seat at that t- if we're going to talk about stability I love the certification process. I think it's important. But if you think the reason we don't have a seat at the table is because of licensure and certification, you're you're not looking at the problem. It's just right. like you said. Are people getting hired for the certification? Well, they're able to apply now because it's you know somewhat of a law given the, right. the toothless NC2A's kind of stance on yeah. that. Yeah. But um, the deal is that it's having the right position and viewed as an integral part, like the athletic trainers. You know, I mean, they, they've done a great job of positioning themselves as a profession, as the NATA, yeah. to say, this is what we expect. This is our expectation. This is how we want to do it. All of them together, right. not a faction group, but all of them together. And yeah. that's why they have what they have. Right. Um, the licensure is, you know, whatever it might be, but that's still, again, you know, that doesn't, get you hired or, or stop you from getting hired. It's just part of the law there, you know, the liability, but that doesn't, you know, there's still plenty of athletic trainers that get pushed into a corner about having guys come back. I mean, that's a real deal, right? So it's not as if that's helping them, but so I think the stability part is something I want to go for. I mean, look, if you want to, if you want to hit your trailer up to a head football coach or a head basketball coach or baseball i mean that's terrific go ahead and do that but what happens at some point where you say i like where i'm living i like this university yeah and you don't have the choice to stay well i think somebody is an associate athletic director at at the college level or an assistant gm when when there's a coaching change at the pro level can say we're not making a change here scott caulfield has proven through his statistical analysis his data the way he runs the program his structure that we have the right program here we're not making a move yeah no that's huge um and when you were in that when you were in the ncaa setting at the director um how do you go about kind of you know is there do you have a way a recommended way of being able to um recommend like how do you become the associate athletic director i mean is that just is that something we still have to figure out (laughs) 
Well, no, I don't think we have to figure it out. And, and here's how I was talking about this the other day. I, I say if you – well, first of all, you have to – again, this is all almost like the dressing thing. You have to have already performed that way, right? So if you're a strength coach and all you're doing is weightlifting and hooting and hollering and getting your guys – and that's great, and you're getting great. Making guys – you know, essentially what we do is make people run faster and jump higher, right? And that's what we want to do. If you're already doing that and you have no other, you're not involved in anything outside of the weight room, and then you're going to have a hard time selling to somebody that you're going to be a team player at the administrative level. So like I said in the one article, you know, run your weight room like a business because it is. When you set up a management plan and a structure that has reporting lines and reviewing processes and details and, uh, you know, a business array plan that says, here's what we do in the weight room. Here's exactly what, here's what we offer. Here's what our service is. Make it clear so that you say, when somebody says, hey, we're going to do this. No, that's not what we offer. You know, this is what we offer, you know, and it's, it's structured and clear and dynamic. Then when that job pops up, instead of saying, hey, Mr. Caulfield, I want to apply for this high performance director job, this assistant GM job, this associate athletic director job, and here's what I plan to do. You can say, Mr. Caulfield, I want to apply for this job, and here's what I've done. Mm -hmm. And you can present them the plan that you've already put in place. Yeah. You've already got it in place. And yeah. so that's the, first, that's the first step. The other step is, frankly, just kind of figuring out on your own. I mean, like I said, you know, I've been in the weight room a long time. I've still stepped out and added some managerial and trying to get in, you know, the high performance kind of arena, which I think is the way to go, frankly. But, you know, trying to step outside and get things going in other ways. Um, but somebody may have to step out early, you know, I mean, uh, and, and, and ironically, I've gotten some calls from younger coaches who've only been coaching five or 10 years and say, you know, I don't like the idea of having six more jobs. Right. You know, I mean, I coached for 35 years and I think I've only had four jobs, yeah. maybe. Yeah. I think I've only had four or five jobs, so I haven't been moving a whole lot. Yeah. And, and one job I had twice. So, I right, mean, uh, right. and they just say to me, you know, I want to have a family and I like it in wherever I'm at. And, yeah. you know, and maybe the, maybe the administration's where I want to be. It might be a little less money. And I say, well, it might not be, right. but it might be. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about doing that. I, and so, you know, it may take a couple of those to do it. And of course, I do think that the criteria for that position, I think you may have to be 10 or 15 years in. They have a good grip yeah, on sure. being able to assess my performance yeah. you know if you've been in 15 years and i i you know I, I i'm a little bit unique because you know hell never many of us have been coaching that long but right. but uh you know it's also got to be a trust thing like i have to know that you know what i'm doing yeah. and you know if you've got a good career and i probably know about you anyway i feel good about that because you're gonna you're gonna champion me yeah you know, at the same time i don't expect that position also just to say yes to everything to it sometimes right. you got to be able to say no i've done this scott yeah. and that's not the right avenue we're gonna take right we're gonna do this instead um so it you know somebody said the same they asked me the same question i said well somebody <laughs> just has to say yeah i want to do that yeah you know and i'm looking forward to doing that someday if the, if the opportunity arises and and uh believe me you'll know when i do because if i do i'll be screaming from mount olympus right, right. trying to get us all involved yeah, it's look like how it works well yeah. it's all it's all about the high performance job too you know yeah. i mean somebody at baseball was telling me like hey bob you know i want to talk to you about these structures you put in place and some of the things we talked about in terms of stability and the 
the status of the profession right now because I think they're going to hire a director over me or something. Yeah. And I say to them, it should be you. Yeah. What, what have you not done? Right. You right, know, right. it should be us. All those, those sports scientists job, frankly, I think we all should be doing. Yeah. I mean, uh, given now, now it's not been clearly defined yet, yeah. but some of the things these guys are doing, um, very smart, bright people. Yeah. There's a lot of very smart, bright strength coaches doing exactly the same thing, but right. they're called strength and conditioning coaches right. too. Right. So maybe, yeah, maybe we haven't also done a good job positioning ourselves to show that we're doing oh, those 100%. things. Yeah. Well, I, I could tell you that that's without question. Yeah. So, I mean, given all that you've seen and the current state, you know, where, where are you, where do you see, uh, this profession going? What do you think? Uh, cause I've talked a little bit about it with a bunch of different people and you're complaining about, you know, uh, there's so many people and so it's so cutthroat or there's so, so many people going for so few jobs. But I also think there's a tremendous, it's growing. It's, it's clearly growing. Oh, there's agree. more and more opportunities in a lot of different avenues. The private sector is booming. The, the professional levels are recognizing it more. Um, more smaller schools, high schools. So like I'm, I think our membership is clearly growing and all time high. So I'm not seeing the, you know, I know it can be frustrating. Sometimes you don't get a job or you feel like there's a lot of competition, but competition isn't a bad thing. Well, I mean, what does competition tell you? There's a lot of people that are doing it. It's it's thriving, right? I mean, that's uh, well, it's almost like you driving down the street, you know, and you see these giant homes and buildings going up, and you and and then you're you're hearing about a recession in real estate, like yeah. okay, or a recession right, in right. finance. You say somebody's making money. <laughs> I mean, these are brand new homes going yeah. up, and I I say the same thing that you're saying. I I think it's climbing. I, I think they're in a lot of ways we're making glacial progress, which is scary. I mean, I'm still seeing and hearing the same things I saw 35 years ago. Yeah. I'm not sure that's not atypical of other professions too, um, but it's really more prevalent in ours than I like it to be. I, I still don't want to hear a sport coach tell me, I think we should be doing this, this, and that. How right. could they possibly know that? Yeah. You know, I don't tell my accountant how to do the math. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. they're, they're math experts. I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I take my car in, I don't say, you know, maybe you should look at the car. What do I know about the carburetor? <laughs> right. I don't, you know, so, um, so I, I think it, I think it is prosperous. I think, I think the science piece is a big part. I think the data piece is a big part. That changes the ball game a little bit for the good, for the good. I think if you're not hopping in on that, your probably chances of getting your probable chance of getting a job aren't very good because it's not, it's not current, you know, and then this technology thing is not going away ever. It's going to get better. It's like the first cell phone I bought when I was down in LA. That was, you know, like the army cell phones you see from the world war two. Right. (laughs) And, and now they're, you know, I remember going to, to, uh, to uh, Japan in, uh, God, it was the mid-90s, and their cell phones were already just a little bit bigger than Domino's, <laughs> you know, so it's it's going to get better. Oh. Um, so, I, yeah, I do see the competition, but look, you got to have to look inward a little bit while you're not getting the job. Do you, have you networked? Have you published? Have you spoke? Um, are you any good? You know, I mean, you don't just deserve a job because you coach 10 years. Right. You know, you deserve a job because you get results. Yeah. And you know, like sometimes I tell other people too, you know, we had a bird. There was a bird every year for four or five years uh, at, at uh, NC State. We had these giant windows, right? 
So in the springtime, this bird would keep banging into the window, just boom, boom, you know. And so I, I always look at that and I say to myself, and then that bird, I mean, he's working his butt off to get in the room. I mean, there's nobody working harder than him, but he's got no results, right. none. So I, it, that's kind of the same thing. Like I'm working hard, you know, but, but okay, but... And that's good. It's probably better than nothing. But are you getting any results? Are you any good? You know, and so that that's, I think there's got to be some introspection when you're looking for work. And, and some of these coaches who are, are having a hard time, you know, at some point you got to say, is this what I should be doing? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's lots of good coaches out there to compare yourself to that are successful. Right. And if, you know, like, like many people will tell you, you know, if you follow successful people in any endeavor, you'll probably get a good idea of what it's going to take right right and if you're not like that then it's hard sometimes to say you're not right right but what's the next move right yeah and again like i said earlier i mean just complaining all the time is not helpful i I mean i'm just so tired of hearing all the problems and no solutions and now i'm in a position where i can help a little bit and i hope everybody kind of follows along absolutely i always joke around that of former employer and not in this field but a different field but he used to say uh we like problem solvers not problem pointer outers <laughs> pointer outers yeah <laughs> yeah i great, mean though you know yeah and i tell my I've, I've learned a lot there's been a lot of quotes along those lines you know yeah. like i don't you know you don't want to bring your boss problems you want solutions yeah. and, and that's and i think our profession is is no different than that but again there's a lot of things that we do with our profession that's not professional yeah. and that's that's a huge it's not even a stumbling block it's yeah. a wall yeah. not a hurdle it's a wall yeah that's a great point uh you mentioned earlier about tweeting and, yeah. uh, kind of joking around laughing about it but how how impactful and how helpful has social media kind of been to connect with people and get the word out outstanding yeah. outstanding i mean it's look it's one of those things again where you know um they don't expect a 60 year old guy to be out there tweeting all over the place <laughs> right but you know i realized a long time ago that that's that's what's happening right now yeah. that's just part of it and if you have a message and you want to get it out that's where you got to go yeah. and uh so part of it was was personal right but the other part is just like we were talking about earlier i mean i I think there's a lot of things happening in our profession that aren't credible they're not right they're not accurate science interpretations all this stuff and uh you know frankly i don't need to sit there and watch it and let it go so i'm going to respond to it you know because you know as i say be careful what you say or what you write because somebody might believe it yeah (laughs) so and i don't want you know, good young strength coaches to be influenced. And if there's any time in the history of our profession where people are getting influenced by so many sources, it's now. Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, it's even more so that when we start, you know, with our staff meetings at NC State, I stopped um, citing or referencing other strength and conditioning professionals about several things because you know they're the staff is they're online so much looking at all this stuff it's just not helpful for me to continue just pounding that in there just get away they're doing it so uh and i think i told you earlier you know the one somebody asked me you know what did you get out of this conference what was new what did you see what was different because i hadn't been there for a while and i told you that you know more people 
had come up to me and say, hey, coach, just want to introduce myself, you know, like what you're putting out on social media, like your articles, like, you know, all that, Um, which had happened before, not with social media, but just from lectures and speaking. But like I told you, during those days, my badge said, you know, Oakland A's, UCLA, and now it just says Bob Alejo on it. And so uh, it's been a real help and I and I hope you know it's been both a help personally and professionally but it's also I think the information that I'm providing I think it's good information that they should know and I and I and so I'm happy about that part it's it's uh Hey, you can say whatever you want about the social media, but it it's real, man. Yeah. It's the way everything it's not happens. Not going anywhere. No, yeah. it's real. You uh, touched on. You mentioned it a couple times now. You touched on it a little bit there, but why is writing so important for strength and conditioning coaches? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I. <clears throat> well, first of all, it's it's a way to get the word out to the masses if that's what you want to call it you know if that's what you're trying to do i mean so you know even at the national when you speak you know if you've packed the house you you know you may have two three hundred people in there but you know and now with social media you put it down in print and it's gone and it's out there everywhere and so i i I think scholarly work is important i mean i think it first of all it teaches you how to speak because you start writing you know and then you become you know your your vocabulary grows a little bit yeah. but like this so i'm writing a shoulder article right now and i finished an instability article you know months ago and so you know going through the research and reading it re- reaffirming what i knew and adding on some new things i mean that it was like a you know uh, a master class that i was performing on myself yeah. you know it was like wow yeah. this is great and you put your thoughts together you order them you learn how to present it to people and, you know, you also learn how to write and inform somebody who doesn't know what you know. So when you and I talk or you and I in strength, we can talk scientifically and we know what we're talking about. Typically, we probably wouldn't, but we could if we wanted to. But not everybody knows what we know, but there's a lot of people out there trying to teach kids how to lift and train and all yeah. that. And so I need to make sure that I, you know, tell them. And so you learn how and you should. Because later on, you you know you you'll learn that if it takes a hundred words to explain something that should only take twenty, you probably don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, and great. and so it, it just makes it puts your thoughts together and organize them. But I th- I think publishing is the way to go. I mean, look, I I'd always wanted to publish a book. I did. Uh, it was uh, I think the human kinetics thing was uh, strength and conditioning for soccer. They have that series, right? Yeah. yeah. And after I finished it, I said, man, that was a pain in the butt. Right? <laughs> but I guess I got a book. But I was excited to write another one. Then I wrote another one with, with Dr. Jose Antonio on baseball. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's a time-consuming thing. Yeah. But but it becomes something that you can add on to your, yeah. you know, your, your work about, you know, that's how you get to – personally, you get to be known that way, of course. But then your, your methods and philosophies get out there. And I think that's important for people to be able to draw upon, whether they use it or not. It's one thing. But I think – Sometimes when you read books or studies or articles about something, even when you don't use that, that's educational. Absolutely. Yeah. I know that I've been writing a couple articles and presenting on a topic on coaching philosophy. And I'm just from the writing of the article and getting critiqued by the, the editors, um, becoming a better writer, I became such a better speaker on the topic, you know, it, 
because I understood it more, I was able to um, be more eloquent about how I got the message across. Yeah, hundred percent. No, I agree. It was huge. So terrific. I have a few kind of uh, go-to questions that are not your standard questions. I kind of wrap this show up with. Uh, <laughs> okay. If you could have dinner or a conversation with uh, any fictional living or dead character, who would it be? Wow. Uh, fictional living or dead character, who would it be? I'm not so sure. I think it would probably be an actor or a musician okay. sort of thing, like yeah. a... Sean Connery or Jimmy Page or, okay. or it, it would be somebody who's revolutionary of sorts you know that nice. kind of thing somebody that just started out I, I, I just absolutely love seeing biographies and stories and you know like so Jimmy Page is still alive obviously and they, they had a there was a a thing on Netflix with Jimmy Page um, The Edge yeah and Jack White, yeah, and it was a guitar thing, right? Yeah. And so each one of them were telling their stories, and it was all about they were talking about the electric guitar was this whole documentary. Jimmy was talking about the first time he did this, and when we met, we did this, and you know, and then it's it just, you know, and I'm just looking at this thing like these guys started that. Right. It, was right. the, it was the beginning, the very yeah. beginning of that. And there's it's hard to have any beginning anymore these yeah. days, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and then, of course, the skills and of some of these actors and some of the things they do is pretty amazing, you know. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't really know, of, you know, not really, no sporting figure yeah, for me, no. really. No. That's cool, man. Most like of that. Yeah. How about uh, if you could eliminate any coaching practice, you could ban something from ever being used again. Stop. <laughs> Discipline. Disciplining, making guys run or get up early in the morning. It's such, such crap. So first of all, I mean, what's the use? I mean, what really, what's the use? And and second of all, the only guy gets tired of doing that is me. I mean, the athletes, they just, here's, here's how you end that though. And I know this to be true. Just don't play them. Yeah. But yet the coach, it's so important that they wouldn't send the ultimate message. You'll just send the one where you get up in the morning and run around. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I, I frankly don't understand any of that. Yeah. And, you know, you brought the kid here. Right. So right. you take care of him. Yeah. I didn't bring him here. You did. Yeah. yeah. But in the end, I think it's just, a, I think it's a waste. And yeah. I, I know that playing time is the thing that motivates any of those yeah. kids. Absolutely. I don't care what it is, you know. I mean, it's, you know, run more. I mean, I... That's, I think it's the dumbest thing ever. I agree, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about this one? This has been an interesting one for people. If you were in an entirely different career path this far along, what would you be doing if it wasn't coaching? Chef. Okay. I think at some point, you know before I get so so fragile that I would cut a finger off or something. <laughs> I already cut my thumb right here. <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm going to go to culinary school. Cool. No no doubt about it. Because think about it now. When you look in the back, they got a head strength coach, yeah. right? It's yeah. the chef. Right. Got assistants, all the sous chefs around yeah. you. And it's just this, 
I, sometimes I sit and watch these giant restaurants, you know, and I watch them cook back there, and it's just a well-oiled, orchestrated machine. Absolutely. I just love watching that, man. Absolutely. And I love to cook. Yeah. That's the other thing, that the value of being home now a little bit more is I get to cook more. And yeah. I took over dinner, and nice. I love it. I Very just love cool. cooking, man. Cool, cool. Um, great. Well, this was fantastic. If people listening in want to get in touch with you and they haven't yet, what's the best way to reach out to you? Well, reach out to me over Twitter. You know, we'll see what your interest is, and maybe we'll exchange a, uh, a cell phone or something. But I'm at, at Coach Alejo. Um, and then there's at Power Lift, at Power uh, underscore Lift, I think it is, uh, or Dash Lift. I can't remember now. But anyway, I'm, I'm there. So, some, you know, if you see some sports science happening there at Power Lift, I'll usually sign that as myself. But that's usually me, and I'll cross – cross retweet it back and forth and all that but uh that's where you can reach me the best i'm i'm usually there uh getting stories out or publishing simplyfaster.com you know get up on that i think that's a great website for information and like most of us you you know you talk about some of the complaining that goes on about what we do in our profession scott a lot of us are not big fans of those who write articles about doing stuff that they actually don't do or don't do a lot of, right. you know, instead of those of us who are coaching 500 kids a week. Yeah. Right. Um, simply faster puts out great articles of actual practitioners who've yeah. done some great things. Yeah. So no, they've been doing a great job and we'll put all that stuff in the show notes so people can read it and find a way to reach out to you. Thanks again for being on the show, man. Appreciate it. Oh man. I love it. It's good to sit here and talk to a good friend and uh, <laughs> yeah. some of you's done a great job with the NSCA and for the rest of us. I thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. This was the NSCA's coaching podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.